Well, so our sermon series is a sermon series called Encounters with Jesus. And uh, Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman has written a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in it, he argues that one of the things that is true about us as humans is that we are prone to deception because we see what we want to see, which he calls confirmation bias. Now, I want to try to give you an example of this. So if you would put that picture up for me, I want you to tell me what that says. That's what it says. Okay, next slide. That's not what it says. It's an example of confirmation bias. Your eye is trained to see what you think you're supposed to see. Um, and so one of the things as we approach this text today in John chapter 9 is we will notice that Jesus' disciples see what they think they're supposed to see. They have this kind of confirmation bias. And they make a lot of assumptions and judgments about it. And then Jesus sees something. And what does Jesus see? And how does what he sees and what the disciples see differ? And then the much more personal question would be, what do you see? Follow along with me. We're going to read, I'm going to read one verse in John chapter 8, and then we'll read all of John chapter 9. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So then he, that's in chapter 8, he goes on into chapter 9 after he said that being the light of the world, and we have this story of a man who was born blind. And we pick up here and it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God, works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath day. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man's a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word, that you will use it to open our eyes, to shape our lives, and help us to walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Don't judge me. It's a pretty common phrase that we hear. Don't judge me. I'm doing what I want. Don't judge me. It's the motto of so many, and yet it's not really the only motto, at least, because the other things we do in our culture today is we live in an outrage and in a cancel culture. And so we do judge people all the time, and we get outraged at them, and then we cancel them, or they cancel us. But it happens even in much smaller ways than that, right? It happens in ways where um, you might be angry at someone driving down the road who doesn't know how to drive. Or at least that's what we would know by your exclamation, like, don't you know how to drive? In other words, like, if you could only drive like me, it would be so much better, right? And we make judgments. Or maybe there's a child throwing a fit in the store, and you're looking at the parent making assumptions and judgments, right? We do this routinely. It doesn't make it right, but it's true that we often do it. Sizing someone up without knowing them, makes assumptions. Makes assumptions and judgments about that person and about who they are or what they do or what kind of person they are. And when that is our starting point in relating to people, it becomes a barrier to giving grace and a barrier to receiving grace. And what I want to try to show you today is that the light of Jesus helps reveal blindness and heal blindness. And the truth is, we all have blindness. And so first, let's look at it this way. Let's look at blindness that we might have in compassion toward others. 
when we are tempted to judge others and have such confirmation bias. One of the things that we see is that the light of Jesus reveals this blindness to us. But how does he reveal that? What happens? In the text, Jesus sees a blind man, a person to help. The disciples see a theological problem to debate. Right? When they see the problem to, be, to debate, Jesus sees a person to help. I mean, the question they ask, Jesus, as they're walking along and they see this beggar laying by this gate, is, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's blind? They're making assumptions right there about his blindness, that somebody has done something wrong. And it's probably helpful for us to distinguish right here between sinful conditions and sinful actions. There are sinful conditions, that is, that we are born into sin. The Bible teaches us, simple from birth, simple from the time my mother conceived me, David writes in Psalm 51. And so we're born into sin, yes, and that means we all experience to some degree or another the brokenness of the world. The world that's affected by sin, including disease, such as blindness. But then there's also sinful actions, the things that we do that are wrong things, and we know those things are wrong things, and we do these things, and they're wrong, and then those have consequences, right? And those sinful actions, uh, uh, sinful actions then have personal consequences. Like, if you're a liar, and you uh, are a repetitive liar, and you keep telling lies, one of the consequences of that is people will stop listening to you or stop trusting you, because you're not trustworthy. Like, uh, lies all the time, Right? And this is what the disciples assume, that somehow this guy has done something that has, or maybe his parents did, that contributed to his blindness. And what does Jesus do with that? And how does that blind man feel? I mean, imagine you're the blind man and you're sitting there and you hear that question. He's blind, but he's not deaf, right? And so he hears them ask the question. Like, oh my gosh, this is what everybody does to me, right? I mean, I'm treated like an object. I'm a test case to be studied. I'm being judged again. What's the rabbi going to say? They've asked him, what is this Jesus guy going to say? Is he going to pile on the guilt and the judgment? Is he going to shame me in this? And he's got to be wondering all these things. And it makes us have to ask a question. Jesus is forcing the reader to ask a question here. Who's blind? Who's blind at this scene? Well, certainly you have the man that's born blind. But the disciples see brokenness and they assign blame. Jesus sees beauty that is and is yet to come. Right? They see differently. The disciples keep analyzing him. Analyzing him to keep everything in a box that's neat and categorized to make sense of life, right? Keep people at a safe distance. They have blind spots. You and I have blind spots. One question I have is, does our fixation in the information age on data analytics make us less compassionate? In other words, do we see a set of numbers and analytics and logarithms and not see people? Does that in some way contribute to that? Data analytics is good. It's a, a great useful tool. But if it makes you less compassionate, wow, that might be something to be aware of. Makes you more efficient, but maybe less compassionate. Maybe. Do you judge those who consistently struggle because you see them as incompetent, 
Is one reason that you find problems with others so that you can feel better about yourself? Right, that judging position, that posture, like, well, what did that person do? I didn't do that. I feel pretty good about myself for a few seconds. Right, sometimes we do that. Do you judge your spouse because you're compensating for your own sin? All these things we do with blind spots, with blindness. And we do this because the voices inside of us are telling us like, protect yourself, defend yourself, control the situation, don't go near them. That will be inefficient and messy and ugly. And then, and then what are you going to do with that? Like, and they're all telling us this. Or maybe like, because you need to show that you're better than the other person or because you don't want to be near them or whatever. Or maybe accusing you, I, I, I can't do that because it'll remind me of who I am or who I was. I, I want to take a phrase from Paul Tripp here who says, can I make a recommendation? Fire your inner lawyer. Stop allowing that inner voice to attack you, to accuse you, and to accuse others. And instead start listening. Listen to what God is doing. Listen to what people are saying. And try to enter into their space with compassion. So the light of Jesus reveals this blindness that we all have in these ways. But the light of Jesus also heals our blindness so that we can become compassionate toward others. Notice what Jesus does. How does Jesus answer the disciples' question? He could criticize them and tell them, you're being so judgmental, stop it. But he doesn't do that. He, he does do that to the Pharisees, though, incidentally. But to the disciples, he doesn't do that. Instead, he teaches them in, in at least three different ways. I want you to notice this with, with me. First, he directly answers their question. We see this in verse 3. You don't have to put this on the screen. But he says, they ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he says, neither. This is so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That's how he answers the question. Instead of shaming guilt, he's saying, no. It's so that we can see the power of hope and redemption. Because Jesus came into the world to restore and make things right. Now, when the blind but not deaf man hears that, what's going through his mind? It's not my fault. What's he going to do? How am I going to see the work of God displayed? Is there hope for me? Jesus sees suffering in this man's darkness as a doorway to bring him light. The second thing that Jesus does after he directly answers their question and this blind but not deaf man hears is he invites the disciples to be part of the ministry with him. Jesus is the one who has come to give sight to the blind and that the lame may leap and all that fulfilling Isaiah 61. But he says in verse 4 here, we must do the work of God. We He's inviting his disciples to say, watch and see what I'm doing, and this is the work we are to be about doing. Jesus heals him, of course, restoring his sight. But he's saying, look, you need to be part of this instead of part of what you're doing now. Join in this kind of work. And the third thing he does is he models compassion for them. So I want you to see this. Put verse 6 on the screen for me. I think there's a slide for this. Let's notice what it says here. So after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, I want you to think for a moment with me of the actions that are happening. Like, you have to put yourself in Jesus' sandals. Like, picture yourself there. You're walking along this path, right? There's a gate. There's a blind man sitting here. 
And um, what has to physically and spatially happen for Jesus to do that? Can, can he just walk away and like skirt around him like, is that what's happening? He's not avoiding him, right? He's approaching him and approaching him and he's getting mud from the ground. He has to, be, this man's sitting and begging. He has to stoop down and get mud from the ground. And now he's down with the guy. And then he puts it on his eyes. Now, how does he do that? Does he take mud like a snowball and ball it up and like, zing, pow, right in the face? That's not at all what's being communicated right here. What's happening here is we are seeing a window of the tenderness of Jesus where he's going to reach out and touch a man on the face that nobody else has probably ever touched other than his parents. Because of his blindness and being Jewish and begging near a gate, he would get money but not touched because he's unclean. And Jesus touches him. He touches him. And he's telling his disciples, you're judging and sitting at a distance. And what you need to do is go to the people and have compassion on them, to sit with them, to touch them. If your marriage is in turmoil, if the communication is bad, if it's full of accusation, you need to learn to listen, learn to have eyes of compassion, to move toward the other instead of guarding and putting up walls and backing off. Both people have to do it. It's not easy. But it's the way that there's hope in your relationship. Maybe people you disagree with friends or family over different issues. Maybe it's even in politics you disagree, right? Listen, learn, approach with compassion. You might not agree in the end, but you will at least learn to respect one another, listen, and understand. And maybe you'll be friends in it still, right? That's a good thing. We can do that. I want to show you this, this table here, just comparing judging and compassion, if you'll put that slide up. And this, this is probably helpful for us to think about, right? Like, and hopefully you can read some of this. But the difference between judging and compassion is this. In judging, they see a theological pu pu uh, puzzle. Compassion, Jesus sees the person in need. In judging, it's unchangeable situation, blind from birth. In compassion, there's redemptive hope. Jesus is the light of the world. In judging, they're analyzing from a safe distance. In compassion, Jesus draws close, stoops down, and touches him. In judging, it's efficient and clean. In compassion, it's inefficient and messy. In judging, you carry your own burdens. Try harder. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Maybe you'll get some more donations in your cup as you beg. Jesus helps carry their burdens and relieves suffering. In judging, what are your feelings when you're judged? Anger, shame, and compassion. What feelings when you're loved? Hope and joy. You see how those are two different things. So the question for you is, who will you encounter this week? And will you judge or will you show compassion? Will you follow Jesus into ministry in that way? Henry Nouwen has a quote where he says this. I don't remember what book this is from, but he says, compassion can never coexist with judgment because judgment creates the distance, the distinction, which prevents us from really being with the other. 
one of the things that you and I need to understand is that our tendency to make judgments means we are also pushing Christ away, not just other people away. Because we don't want Christ too close to us either. The compassion of Christ, though, moves towards sinners like me and like you. And this is the part we need to get. Both of these parts, but this part too. It's not only that we might have blindness in compassion toward others, it's also that we have a blindness toward Christ. Both the man who was born blind and the Pharisees are religious people, right? The man's parents went to synagogue. They're afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue. The Pharisees are leaders in the synagogue and so forth. They're both religious and they're both blind. But they respond to their blindness differently. The blind man knows it and the Pharisees don't. Spiritual blindness toward Christ is revealed when you make less and less of Jesus. If you're dismissing Jesus, pushing Jesus to the side, making less of him, less concerned, like, oh, it's okay, I'm not too worried about this, this or that sin, just, it's okay, like, and just keep Jesus at arm length. When you push him aside, when you, when you put distance there, you're making less of Jesus, it's probably a clue you've got blinders on or you're blind. Notice this in the text, right? Where people claim to be able to see Jesus, but they ignore or dismiss things, right? So in verse 16, put that on the screen. This is the man, he's with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are questioning him. And the Pharisees said to the man, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. He's a sinner, but he does perform great signs. So he's a healer, but he's a Sabbath breaker and a sinner. That's their accusation toward Jesus. And the ex-blind man's parents are indifferent and they're scared. They don't want to lose their spot in the synagogue and probably business and everything from it. So they're like, whatever, he's grown up. You listen to him. We'll just stay to ourselves. We don't want to get involved. But in, in verse 29, notice what else they say. In verse 29, they say, talking about following Moses, and we said, we know that God spoke to Moses. But as far as this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now, what are they saying there? They are saying you know, he comes from Nazareth, and you know his mother is Mary, and she had this weird claim about her whole pregnancy. She was pregnant before marriage, and we're not even sure who the father is. They're casting aspersions on the family. Moses, we know, great reputation. This Jesus, how can we even trust him? Right? They're making less and less of Jesus. And Jesus, in the end, talks to him in verse 41, and um, says to him, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. Because they're saying, what, are we blind too? And, he's, and in a way, he's saying you're blind, but he's also saying you're not because he's saying you claim to see, so then you're going to be held accountable for what you're saying. And so your guilt remains. But it's also kind of a backhanded way of saying, yes, you're blind. <laughs> they need to be humble and listen to Jesus. We need to be humble and listen to Jesus. Jesus lived and died and he taught and he gave us his word we need to cling to his word to the scriptures in that way because that's the truth that's the these are the words of eternal life what else do we have as we saw last week that peter said in john 6 and some churches are choosing to move away from biblical teaching and to ignore parts as irrelevant or we don't want to deal with those today and we might, they might even say, well, Jesus shows us so much to be loving and compassionate. That means we just, we won't judge and so we won't say anything about what's right and wrong and we'll just love and be compassionate. 
But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He is full of love and compassion. In fact, you can't even really be full of love and compassion unless you're first assuming that there is something wrong or not normal or not the way it should be. So you're already saying, yes, there is such a thing as a right and wrong, a good and evil. And Jesus approaches this with love and compassion. And Jesus takes the spiritual blindness that you and I have and that this man has and he heals it. And a sign that your spiritual blindness is being healed is when you are making more and more of Jesus. When you're making much about him and you're like, Jesus is amazing. I'm drawn to Jesus. I want to know more about him. I, I want to follow him. That's when you know the blinders are coming off and you're seeing clearly. I mean, notice this, how this happens in, in, in the text here. It's more than religiosity. It's about a personal relationship with him. And it happens through a series of encounters that the blind man has with Jesus. First, we're told in verse 17 that the blind man answers and says, well, this is what I know about Jesus. I know he's a prophet. He's getting questioned. Well, who is he? He's a prophet. He must be. A prophet is a spokesperson for God and sent by God. And he's done amazing things. He's done great signs. In verse 25, he goes on to say that. He's like, look, I was healed. Here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. I see Jesus. He's encountered the real Jesus who has given him real hope for real change in life. And in verse 27, he goes a step further. When he asks them, he says, do you want to become his disciples too? The implication is, I'm following Jesus because that guy is the guy that changed my life. And so it's personal, but I also want you to notice another thing that's a sign that the blinders are coming off for this blind man. It's personal to him, but he doesn't keep it private. He testifies to the work of God in his life. In verses 8 through 11, he immediately is healed. And, and of course, he goes and he's talking to his friends and neighbors. And they're like, ah, you're not the blind guy. You can see. And he's like, no, I am the blind guy. Like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. And he's like, this is what Jesus did for me. This is the change in my life. And he's telling them about it. And so they're like, I don't know. You're going to have to go report to the religious leaders. So they drag him to the Pharisees. And he testifies before them, not once, but twice. Because they call him back. He's willing to testify to what God has done in his life. Are you and I willing to do that? To testify what God's doing in your life? It's a sign the blinders are coming off when you're willing to testify. And then the other thing that it says that he does is that he believes and worships Jesus. If you come to the point of believing in Jesus and worshiping Jesus, what you are saying at that point fundamentally is... I now see Jesus as somebody more than just useful. I see him as beautiful, as the Savior. Right? Because when, when Jesus can, can bless your life and give you the things you want or give you your sight back, that's great. That's all good. But if Jesus is only useful as you for a tool to make you happy right now, you have an incomplete view of Jesus. You still have blinders on because this man bows in front of him on the ground to worship him. He's saying, Jesus, you're beautiful. You are worthy of worship and honor, whether I can see or not. Look at verse 38 with me, if you'll put that, that verse up. This is where he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Right? I believe, and then he worships. The word belief here 
is not merely gaining information. It's not simply intellectual. It's about persuasion to trust. And the word worship, as I just said, is it's kneeling with face to the ground. That's not a common thing people did because when they did it, it was clearly a sign of worship. This is the first time in the Gospel of John where somebody bows in front of Jesus to worship him. And the blind man is making a statement to everybody who's watching. This Jesus, he's God. And Jesus is receiving it, not denying it. He's allowing him to make that claim that he is in fact God. Now, what makes the blind man willing to put his faith in Jesus? Is he healed? Yes. Is that a part of it? Absolutely. That's part of his encounter with Jesus. But when he believes and he worships, he's doing more than just saying, I was blind and now I see. He's admitting that he is a sinner. <laughs> the question that started at the beginning, is sin a real deal or not? He's like, yeah, I'm sinful. That's not why he was blind. But yeah, he has to admit his sin and he has to repent of it and turn to Jesus. So here's the question. What makes you willing to repent of sin and turn to Jesus? Right? If Jesus is going to heal you, you can be like, yes, I'm in. What makes you willing to confess like, okay, I've blown it. And I'll come to Jesus. The blind man knew that Jesus came to him. Right? Stooped down on the ground. He touched him on his face. He says, nobody else ever did that for me. I'll go to Jesus because he cares and he loves me. And you might think I'm stretching the text there, but I don't think I am. And I'll give you other proof of it. Look at verse 35. Let's put that on the screen. I want you to notice what happens here. Jesus heard that they had, they is the Pharisees, right? This is the second time he'd gone to the Pharisees at the synagogue, right? He'd heard that they threw him out. So they kick him out. They say, yeah, you can't be with one of us. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now, this might be something you just read over in the text. And when he found him, what's going on here? Remember the story. Jesus is walking down a path, sees a blind man, heals blind man. Jesus goes on his way. Blind man goes back to his house, tells in his village, tells everybody what's happened to him. He and Jesus aren't together anymore. Blind man goes to the Pharisees twice. Jesus is still not around. And it says, and when he found him, which means what? Jesus was looking for him. When Jesus heard he got kicked out by the Pharisees, Jesus went after him. He pursued him and he went to him and he found him. Then notice verse 37, what happens. In verse 37, Jesus says, the man asked, well, I would like to, I would like to know who this, who this Jesus is. And he says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. The beautiful part about this moment in the story is this is actually the first time the blind guy sees Jesus. Because Jesus put mud on his eyes and told him to go to the pool and wash. And there is when he gets his sight back. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. He's heard him, he's felt his touch, but he hasn't seen him until now. He's like, I want to believe. And Jesus says, I'm right here in front of your eyes. I've come for you. He's like, I believe. I believe. He's seen Jesus. Jesus is pursuing you. 
He pursues his people because he is interested in them, not just for their physical health, but for all eternity to make the world right again, paradise restored. So a question I might ask you is, do you feel like you keep bumping into Jesus? Is he searching for you? If so, turn to him. Turning to him and away from sin is called repentance. Owning it. Owning your sin. It's important for me to say that you do need to be convicted of your sin. You need to understand that sin is serious, that it's bad. It's what messes up the world. It's offensive to God. You also need to hear me say that, that groveling in your sin, sitting in your sin, trying to, to work your way through your sin in the sense of doing it to beat yourself up is not what Jesus envisions. In other words, repentance must have conviction of sin, but it's not you doing penance to somehow repay God by telling yourself over and over, I'm so bad, I'm so unworthy, I don't deserve it, I'm so bad, I know, I blew it, I blew it. You have to know that. But it's not as if telling yourself that again and again, somehow you prove to God that you were sorry enough that you worked up a bargain and said, I promise I'll never do it again, are we good now? That's not what repentance is. Repentance is turning from your sin and going to Jesus. And it's a skill you have to learn again and again in life. <laughs> because you've still got your sin in life. Robert Capon says this about repentance. He says, repentance is a celebration, not a bargaining session, in which we work up enough resolve against sin to con God into putting up with us. Why does he say that? Because Jesus is pursuing sinners. He's already coming to you. You're not conning him. You're just owning who you are and saying, okay, Jesus, I'm ready. Your arms are open and I'll go into those arms. And that means your repentance is overcome with joy because you realize you can't pay God back and it's freeing. It means that you are full of joy because you realize that God is running to you with arms wide open. It means that your repentance while it might begin with a sad face, often ends with a smile, sometimes through tears. Because there's joy in it. Because Jesus has come to you and you've encountered the living God. Do you see, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? I want to encourage you to do that. We need gospel humility to see our own blindness. And once you see that, and that's been lifted and you see Jesus, then that compassion that you see in Jesus needs to flow through you toward others so that we become extensions doing the work with Jesus as he invited his disciples to do. As a younger man, I thought, you need to listen carefully to what I'm saying so this does not get twisted. As a younger man, I thought of prostitutes as doing wrong, which it is. But I didn't realize the brokenness and the plight of desperate circumstances that often lead to prostitution. And the first and only time I had a prostitute write her phone number on my hand with eyeliner was on a mission trip in Philadelphia. She was a prostitute to support her heroin addiction didn't dress like a prostitute like you might think of in Vegas or something like that. She was broken and hurting on the street and needed help. And I said, well, the people we're here with help. They're compassionate. They long to help people. 
She's like, well, give him my number. She grabbed my hand and wrote it on my, her number on my hand with her eyeliner. A different day that week when we were in Philadelphia, we went on a, a prayer walk and the missionary who was with us went by Pastor Dave and he taught us to say, because he knew that our confirmation bias and our blinders, he said, you need to look at people in the face and you need to see the face of Jesus in them. And he was using that, that text where Jesus talks about what you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine you have done for me. And he said, see the face of Jesus in them. And one morning we were walking at 6 a.m. Uh, along Kensington Avenue under the L train and a black town car stopped and a prostitute got out and did what he called the Kensington shuffle, shuffling across the street, uh, barely able to walk and sat down on a stoop of a store on the sidewalk. She was a heroin addict selling herself to support her addiction. She was barely conscious, significantly dehydrated. And I watched Pastor Dave go sit next to her on the stoop and take candy, heroin addicts crave sugar, take candy like M&Ms, chocolatey things, and open her mouth, because she didn't have the energy to do it, and put candy in her mouth and close her mouth and open a water bottle and give her sips of water to allow it to dissolve. And I watched him tenderly care for this woman who the night before had no such tenderness, no such care. I watched the compassion that he showed to her and I, said, and I realized I have a lot to learn about being compassionate to people. He took her shame by helping her and gave her hope by treating her with the compassion of Jesus. But Christian, here's the truth. You and I are that prostitute. You and I are the ones that are broken sitting on the step. You and I are the ones that Jesus comes to and sits next to and touches our face and says, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. He lifts the blindness. And he speaks tenderly to us. And he exchanges his life for our life. And he pursues us because he loves us. And that's the power that Jesus has to change lives. Your life. And my life. Who will you pursue and encounter this week to show the love of Jesus to. Might be in your own house. Might be in your neighborhood. Might be your workplace. If you've encountered Jesus, help others encounter him too. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who having encountered you will be kind and compassionate to others. Lift the blinders from us that we will see others the way that you see others. Lift the blinders from us that we will see you clearly, that we will see our sin clearly, that we'll repent of it and turn from it toward you. Lord, as we do that, help us to know our guilt, but not to be left groveling in it. Help us to come to you with great joy, to sing with hearts full of joy, with eyes wide open because we know you. 
We who were once blind, but now we see. Jesus, would you give us that kind of amazing grace? We pray in your name. Amen.